Well, thank you, Ashley. And I want to say hi to everyone, wherever you are watching from this morning. Wonderful to have you with us. Uh, especially if you're watching, you're new. Great to have you as you are joining in with our church and our look at the book of Proverbs, a sermon series we are calling Wise Versus Lies. Uh, looking at this book of Proverbs and its profound implications and application to our lives uh, in a modern world. And, and the book of Proverbs, uh, it, it speaks over and over directly or indirectly uh, to this word pride, pride and its implications uh, for our life. And we're going to look at several passages this morning that are going to guide us as we look at this topic of pride. And so if you are willing and able this morning out of reverence for God's word to us, I invite you to stand as I read our scripture for the day coming from this amazing book of Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 25 says, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 21, 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. And lastly, Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, four things we need to learn from this book of Proverbs and what it has to speak to us about pride and its implications. First, the seriousness of pride. Secondly, the faces of pride. Third, the deceptiveness of pride. And finally, the way out of pride. The seriousness, the faces, the deceptiveness, and finally, the way out. First, the seriousness of pride. Uh, you know, it, when you look at the Bible and you look throughout church history, uh, it's very clear that the Bible speaks uh, everywhere to pride, and, and even church history, church historians speak to pride. Uh, Martin Luther, who, who wrote in his book, The Treatise on Good Works, says the, the, the chief sin underneath all sins is pride. It, it's foundational to everything that gets laid. It, it is pervasive. St. Augustine, uh, the great church historian, uh, uh, said that humanity is, uh, as he said, in, it says in the Latin, incurvatus in se, humanity is curved in on the self. It's pervasive. It's serious. Um, and, and this morning, uh, I want to offer my own definition <laughs> that I, I promise will not rival uh, Luther's nor St. Augustine's, but may be helpful for you. Pride is the instinctual and habitual concentration on the self. Pride is the instinctual and habitual concentration on the self. 
Now, you may be watching this morning and you may be a skeptic, um, having questions with Christianity, um, having questions with the faith. You may be watching this morning. You may call yourself a Christian, but you question uh, the Bible's validity, question the Bible's authority uh, to speak to a modern person living in a modern city like Orlando. But, but whoever you are, uh, we can all speak to the fact that even in our modern day, uh, pride still has not been solved. Uh, just to, to, to make this a reality for you, um, I, I'm going to throw out a date to you. Uh, J- January 28, 1986. January 28, 1986. Now, the second I say that date, for some of you watching right now, you, you remember this date. Uh, you know exactly where you were. Uh, you, you know the room that you were sitting in when you were watching. Uh, some of you, 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 you have no idea or concept of the date, uh, but, but you do have a string of history. You've heard about this date. You've, you, you may have seen a video somewhere along the way. And then there's some of you, maybe pretty young, uh, you, you have no concept uh, to this date. You have no concept to this story. But January 28, 1986 was the Challenger explosion out of Kennedy Space Center. And uh, going into that, that situation with uh, the, the flight, uh, they were concerned. They had actually been postponing uh, the flight and, and, and the launch date uh, a few times. And uh, the night before this new launch date, NASA uh, had reached out to the engineers uh, who had developed the motor uh, engines of the rockets. Uh, and one of the engineers that was part of that conversation was a man named Alan McDonald. Uh, and, and on the day of the launch, they knew it was going to be unusually cold. And McDonald knew that the O-rings that would go on to the rocket, those seals had not been tested at those cold of temperatures. It was supposed to be about 53 uh, degrees. Um, and so he knew that they were, they were not tested yet. Um, and he was afraid to sign off. But NASA de- demanded someone sign off from this company And McDonald refused, but his boss ended up signing off on the project and the launch. And of course, the next day, McDonald and millions of others tuned in to watch after a mere 73 seconds into flight, the shuttle burst into flames. And after the accident, uh, they did a review uh, to look at what caused this explosion. And it was exactly what McDonald had feared. These O-rings that had not been tested could not hold up under that cold of temperature. So in other words, there were people in the know who could have foreseen the exact cause of failure, who had heard a warning not to do this. Why did they choose to go ahead? Why would NASA choose to do this. And Alan Donald says, what NASA fell prey to is the oldest and most basic sin of all. He said this, NASA had become too successful. Uh, They had gotten by for a quarter of a century and had never lost a single person going into space. And they had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. Seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. And so how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All of this success gives you a little bit of arrogance you shouldn't have. 
but they hadn't stumbled yet, and they just pressed on. McDonald says the issues of pride have not been solved in the modern world. And the Bible tells us that, that this problem is not a modern problem. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You see, uh, they didn't want God to tell them what to do. Uh, the seriousness of pride is always connected to our desire to replace God in our lives. We want to call the shots. Uh, we want the glory. Uh, we, the verse that was read earlier, Proverbs 15, 5 says this. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Now, now this word here is a very interesting word for proud in Hebrew. It's the word ge'ech. Uh, and it is always implied for God and his supreme majesty. It's always, always meant to go to God. Uh, and so to use it for a human is irony in the highest sense. We want to call the shots over our life. We want the majesty. We want the glory. And Alan McDonald, as he recalled the challenger error, says, you can choose to ignore the seriousness of pride and its implications for your life. But choosing to ignore it does not make your life any better. In fact, I think McDonald would argue it can make your life a lot worse. There's a seriousness to it. Second, we have to see the faces of pride. And for us to understand this, we have to rely on the author C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, says that, that pride is always concerned with the self and how it relates to others. He said this in the book, Mere Christianity. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Uh, we say that the people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Uh, th this is the issue of pride. Uh, and many of you, when you think of pride, this is what we think of. We think of the arrogant person. We think of the self-consumed person. We, th we think of the person of every time you talk to them, it's about the next mountain that they've accomplished, the next notch in their belt, the next victory, the next achievement. Uh, but Lewis says, uh, he, as he diagnoses the symptoms of pride, what he finds, this is actually only one form of pride, what, what he would call the superiority form of pride. It is the instinctual and habitual concentration on the self and how you are always coming out on top. But Lewis says that pride, because it is always connected to others, means that there's an inferiority form of pride as well. Uh, in his book, uh, Lewis wrote Screwtape Letters. Uh, Lewis diagnoses this inferiority form of pride. And if you haven't read Screwtape Letters, uh, it's the story of a senior devil writing to a junior devil on how to tempt Christians. And so in the story, the enemy is Jesus and the patients uh, are human beings. And this is what Lewis says in Screwtape Letters. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let, let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. 
By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe that they are ugly and clever men trying to believe that they are fools. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. Lewis says there's two faces to pride that tempt us. One is the superiority form. It looks at others and it feels it has risen to the top. It is the most successful. It is, it's the person that you encounter at the party who is quite comfortable to go on and on and on about their life and the mountain that they conquered and the places that they have been and the promotion they just received and the interesting people that they have met. Or you will encounter those who deal with the inferiority form. This is the, this is the face of pride we miss sometimes. It is the temptation to think, as Lewis says, of our, quote, low opinion. It's the person who keeps talking about how they're not special, how they're always falling behind, how they, how they can't get, seem to get things right in their life. Uh, they come across to us as modest, but it is still instinctual and habitual concentration onto self. Uh, you run into this person at the party and they will have no problem telling you how poorly they're doing with their job. Uh, they, they're going to tell you they're really not that great when they are. Uh, you're going to run into them. They're going to tell you they need to lose weight when they are a size zero. Uh, we've all encountered these people. Uh, Lewis says this is the ploy of pride. Avoid self-exaltation, but embrace self-condemnation. But Lewis says, and I think he's right, humility is not concerned about the self at all. If you met a truly humble person at the party, you probably wouldn't even recognize it. You would just be amazed by their strangely warm presence, how they are so uncalculating and how they deal with you, um, how restful they seem, how happy they appear, how frankly they are interested in you and not interested in themselves at all. Uh, The best definition that I could find to describe humility in the fewest words as possible comes from Pastor Rick Warren, and he says this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So this morning, we have to get this. There are two faces to pride, the superiority face that wants to tell you how they are succeeding and how they're achieving and the inferiority face that wants to tell us how we are falling behind, how they are falling behind. It can be related to their career, their body, their status, even their religion, how they stack up. But how does pride like this take root in our souls? Well, that brings us to our third thing we must learn the deceptiveness of pride. And one of the Proverbs that was read in the beginning gives us this picture of this kind of deceptiveness. Proverbs 21, it says this, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Uh, The first thing we have to learn about the deceptiveness of pride is that it colors the room. Pride colors the room. Uh, I I don't know um, if you deal 
with being colorblind or you know somebody who deals with being colorblind. I, I actually uh, struggle with being colorblind, but don't worry this morning. I know my shirt is yellow. Uh, Rachel, my wife, told me before I left. But maybe you've seen one of these videos, uh, the, the videos where there's this person who's colorblind, uh, but they get these special glasses to put on. And they put on these glasses and they finally see colors, maybe for the first time that they have never seen. And if you've seen one of these videos, you know, it's an emotional moment. I mean, tears are coming down and this reality of seeing things that they have never seen before. This passage says that pride is a lamp. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, commentators think that the image of the lamp is connected to how the ancient world would have seen because they couldn't see anything at night without the light of a lamp. The lamp set the color for everything they would see. So if your lamp was yellow, uh, everything you saw had a tint of yellow. If, if your flame was red, everything looked red. You see, what pride does is it colors the room. It colors the room. You see, a prideful person, they can only look at the situations in their life and they can only see what the other person did wrong. They, can, they, they can't admit their mistakes. They are always quick to blame other people. Uh, as someone who, who's had their room colored by pride, uh, if they did make a mistake, they'll, they'll be the first to say the reason that they did that was because of what that other person did, how they were wrong. Pride always colors. It colors every situation, every scenario, every conversation, every email. And we see that it colors the room in family dynamics, in organizational dynamics. When pride colors the room, no one can be honest because the issue is never that person. Have you known someone like this? Have you worked for someone like this? These people cannot see correctly because the pride has colored their room. Secondly, and I would even say more important, the deceptiveness of pride is it poisons the air. It poisons the air. A couple of our friends who are from Houston, Texas, uh, they, they had felt called to leave their jobs and to move their family uh, to Colorado, uh, where they were going to live uh, on an actual campsite and work on a camp, uh, work at a camp there in Colorado. And when it came time to, to pack up all their belongings, they packed up everything and they moved to Colorado and they got there for that very first night in their house that was on the camp property. Uh, everyone had made their way to their beds, had fallen asleep. And my friend began to share the story of how in the middle of the night, uh, the kids started coming into the room complaining uh, that their heads were hurting, that they had a headache. And after so many kids had, had come into the room complaining about a headache, uh, the, the dad of the family got out of bed to kind of address the kid headache issue, uh, only to begin to pass out. Uh, the mother, uh, she's, as she shared this story with me, she, she was saying that uh, she knew something was wrong, not when the kids are coming in with the headache issues, not when dad is passing out on the floor after standing up, but it's when the house cat passed out. When the house cat passed out on the vanity, when it fell from the vanity, the mother then knew something is horribly wrong. You see, what this family was dealing with 
was a carbon monoxide leak in their house. Carbon monoxide is odorless, tasteless, and invisible, and deceptively lethal. Pride, in much the same way, poisons the air. It is odorless, tasteless, and invisible, and without us realizing it, pride is killing us. How do we know the deceptiveness of pride? Well, if we can be honest, up to the point in this sermon, haven't you mainly been thinking about someone else? Their pride, their issues, their hypocrisy. Haven't you mainly been thinking, oh, that sounds so much like that guy. Or that sounds so much like her. Uh, you, you may have been listening and you may have been thinking, I can't wait to share this sermon with this certain person later because let's face it, they need to hear it. Uh, you may be watching right now, sitting next to a person and you've been thinking in your head this whole time, I sure hope they are listening to this sermon. There is a level of poison in the air if you have made it this far into the sermon thinking it is about someone else, our pride will always hide. It is deceptive. It poisons the air and we don't even notice it. Now I know what someone's thinking. Okay, Tyler, you got me. So what do I do? And what I think is a common answer at this point when you engage is when you're engaged with and exposed of the spiritual carbon monoxide of the soul, you'll say, that's it. You're right. I'm going to stop being prideful. I'm going to get humble. I need God. I need to pray. Uh, I'm going to read my Bible more. But the problem is, as long as you stay in that room, where the air has been poisoned, it will only make things worse. We will become more judgmental. Uh, we will look down on someone because their religion doesn't appear to be going as well as ours. And we will keep thinking everything is fine until it is not. There's this great moment in the ancient world uh, in this little community called Tekoa. Uh, God reveals himself to a shepherd and a farmer uh, in this community of Tekoa. And his name was Amos. And, and God asked Amos uh, to, to be a prophet for him, to, to declare his word for him. And you have to imagine this scene, this, this shepherd farmer named Amos gets a word from God. Uh, and the people of Israel gather around Amos as he starts to pronounce his judgments on the foreign countries of Israel. And so Amos begins his message declaring the judgment on the Ammonites, this vile and ruthless people. And the crowd around him begins to get rowdy and cheer. Some begin to shout his name, Amos, 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 Amos. Uh, you can even see a section of the crowd where someone has begun the wave. Uh, they are loving all the words that Amos has to say about the Ammonites, but he doesn't finish. Amos keeps going. He, he denounces the judgments on Tyre and Moab and Edom. And at this point, uh, this crowd is in a state of euphoria. They are hugging each other and jumping up and down in celebration, forgetting any concept 
of social distancing. And right there in that moment, Amos gives his next pronouncement of judgment. Judgment on Israel. And the crowd goes incredibly silent. Some begin to whisper uh, to their neighbor, did he just say Israel? He, he, he couldn't have possibly just said Israel. You see, religious pride may be the worst of all. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer I quoted earlier, uh, at the end of his sermon on Psalm 143 says this, no one is more afflicted by this vice of pride than he who imagines that he is rid of it. Pride poisons the air in the room. And so we will sometimes say, you know, you know what? I, I, I'm tired of, of living this way of life. I'm going to start fresh. I'm going to stop being bad and I'm going to start being good. I'm going to change the color of paint in this room. I'm going to remodel this room. I'm going to redecorate this room. I'm going to clean up this room. I'm going to Marie Kondo this room. But you see, that's religion. Religion says, even though there's carbon monoxide in the room and it is killing me, I can make it work. I can clean it up. I can make this room a little more hospitable. But pride continues to poison the air. Christianity says, I need a way out. I need to be delivered. I need to be saved. In fact, this is, this is exactly the story of my friends in that house in Colorado. Uh, the, the friends who survived that carbon monoxide leak. Uh, after seeing the house cat pass out, uh, this mom knew something was horribly wrong. And so she decided in that moment to lift up the window in her bedroom to get a little fresh air to help with the situation. Uh, what she didn't know at the time that emergency responders told her later was that decision to open that window saved her life and the life of her family. We need a way out. We need a way out. And that brings us actually to our final thing we need to learn, the way out of pride. One of the Proverbs that was read earlier, Proverbs 28, tells us this. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. A fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. How do we get this wisdom? How do we find a way out? Don't you see the fool is the one who says, hey, I'm going to stay in this carbon monoxide laden room with the doors shut and the windows closed, but I think I can make it work. The wise person says, I can't stay here. I need a way out. The question for us is, where is that way? Where is the way out? How can we be delivered? Well, Jesus says there is a way out of pride. 
in the gospel of John, he's speaking to the crowds that have followed him. And it says this in John 10, Jesus speaks and says, I am the door. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus says he is the way out. But not only is he the way out, but he stepped into the poisoned aired room, shut all the doors, shut all the windows and took your place. Another way to put it is for you to have a way out. He had to step in. The reason he can deliver you is because he allowed all of our pride to consume him. He said, on the cross, uh, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, do you know what was happening there? Uh, in that moment, all of our pride had fallen on him to the point he could no longer breathe. His air was spiritually poisoned. All of our pride and our judgment fell on him until he took his very last breath. He went in so we could have a way out. And the reason he did this for you and for me is that no matter how many times we find ourselves being self-consumed again, no matter how many times we find ourselves focused on what's going on in my life, no matter how many times we can't seem to get out of our own way, Jesus is the door. And he declared on the cross to you and to me that the door will always remain open for anyone who wants a way out. The question this morning is, do you, do you want that way out? David Brooks, he's a New York Times bestselling author and a couple years ago wrote a book called The Second Mountain, where he wrestles with the message of Christ and his own struggle with pride. He wrote this book with his research assistant and now wife, Ann Snyder. And this is David Brooks speaking. He says this, I was struggling with the concept of surrender and grace, and I didn't like Martin Luther's idea that you can't be saved by works, but only by faith. I wanted to stake out a middle ground, which I called participatory grace. You do some good things for your fellow human and God would sort of meet you halfway. Anne was having none of it. And this is Anne goes on. She says this in response. I want to reiterate that grace is the central thing Christ offers. He is the door. The foundational fact is you cannot earn your way into a state of grace. This denies grace's power and subverts its very definition. Grace must reach out to the broken and the undeserving. It must reach out to those recognizing plainly, vulnerably, their own need and emptiness. It can only find welcome there. And Brooks as he recounts these words from Anne, began to reach for that door. He began to see the need he was in. And he finally acknowledged the reality of what was going on in his soul. And this is what he said. The name of my condition was pride. Brooks ultimately had an encounter where he recognized his own need and emptiness. And the question this morning is, have you? Friends, hear the good news. There's a door. There is a way out. Jesus Christ is the door that has been flung wide open for anyone who wants to be delivered from their pride. 
He is the way out. And all who run to him find the grace he longs to give. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our hearts to see the depths Christ would go to deliver us, to take the curse of our pride on himself and to be the door to everlasting life. May we live with a true sense of humility at work in our lives because we have received Christ and the grace that is ours by faith. We pray this in his name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Let's sing together our closing song this morning.